the Cardinals were aggressive with their non-tender decisions. Do we agree with the moves to get rid of Dakota Hudson, Jake Woodford, Andrew Kisner, and Juan Yepes? Coming up on B-Shape Daily. What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you. Evening hours of Monday, November 20th, 2023. You'll be listening here on Tuesday, most likely, as we record for the second time today. But for good reason, the Cardinals making a signing reportedly earlier Monday with the reports coming out that the Cardinals are bringing back Lance Lynn on a one-year contract with a team option for 2025. That was the discussion of the most recent episode of B-Shape Daily before this one. Scroll back on your podcast feed if you missed it, or check it out on YouTube as well, youtube.com slash at bshafer12. Had a lot to get into with that one, but wanted to get a quicker video done for you guys to talk about our thoughts on the Lynn signing. I imagine it'll be announced later this week. If you saw on Twitter, Jim the Cat Hayes, who has a great relationship with Lance Lynn, tweeted that Lance had sent him a text saying the... Deal is still pending a physical, but once that goes through, you're in for it again, Cat. I'm coming for you this year. So I thought that was funny. That wasn't the exact phrasing, but you can find the tweet on Twitter from Jim the Cat Hayes and follow him on YouTube as well. I know he's starting up a YouTube channel, so we help each other out that way. But beyond Lance Lynn joining the Cardinals, we still have some news to discuss from last Friday as we didn't do a podcast Saturday or Friday night discussing the non-tender moves that the Cardinals made before that deadline Friday evening. And there were a couple of expected moves in there. The Dakota Hudson one we talked about previously in the week. Jake Woodford, we kind of anticipated as well that the Cardinals could move on for both of those pitchers, really. And in the case of Woodford, was due to make maybe a little bit more than a million dollars in ARB. Dakota Hudson was closer to $4 million through arbitration eligibility. And given the way that really both of them performed last season, it just didn't really seem to make sense that the Cardinals would devote financial resources to those players. However, if you look at the fact that both of them logged somewhat significant innings for the Cardinals in kind of a depth role for the rotation, the reality gets even thicker that the Cardinals are going to have to add a lot of pitchers and innings to cover the gap and to cover what's being lost. Even though what's being lost is not necessarily high-quality innings, their innings nevertheless, and so the Cardinals are having to kind of piece that together. I think the Lance Lynn move is a good start considering he had over 180 innings pitched last season. Were they the best of innings? Not necessarily. He had the worst year of his career, but the Cardinals may be looking for a bit of a bounce back on a buy low one-year contract, and if it goes well, they can pick up the club option for 2025. Again, we delved more into the Lance Lynn ramifications in the previous video, and it'll say on the title of the video that it's about Lance Lynn, so you can't possibly miss it if you want to go check that out. But I want to dive in more to the non-tender stuff today. The pitchers, like I said, we kind of knew, kind of figured that that could be the case. The Cardinals are going to continue to figure out ways to replace those guys from an innings perspective. But was it more surprising to see Juan Yepes and maybe even more so Andrew Kisner also non-tendered on Friday? That's what I want to spend the bulk of the time talking about. We may circle back on the pitching stuff as well, but I think that all kind of ties into the Lance Lynn stuff. It's an innings question when it comes to Dakota Hudson, Jake Woodford. Can you afford to let him go? Well, it depends on how many kind of back into the rotation, swingmen type pitchers John Mozeliak and company are going to be able to come up with here. 
that can at least meet the bare minimum because it's what you kind of got from guys like Hudson and Jake Woodford last year. They threw some innings, and do you have those innings in your system? Right now, I, I would be skeptical that the Cardinals do, even of that kind of low caliber of innings that those guys provided are enough of the young guys and the minors ready because it seemed that everybody they brought up last year was not really contributing in too many meaningful ways. You, you know, you brought in Drew Rahm, you gave him a shot. He didn't have a great go of it. They're going to give him more opportunities. Zach Thompson, they're, they're maybe having the most hope placed in him for his ability to contribute in a role this season. And then there's some other guys in AAA that we just didn't get a glimpse at. Was that because they're not ready and the Cardinals still might be skeptical for 2024, whether they can contribute or not, those are going to be some of the questions that I think we'll see effectively answered by the Cardinals, whether they add a bunch of kind of non-roster invitee sort of guys, some guys that can come to spring training with some veteran experience, but maybe not be guaranteed a roster spot. The Cardinals are throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall to see what sticks, which I think they should probably do any anyway, but that could indicate that they have a little bit less belief in the system guys to be able to fill those roles. Because again, we're not always talking about starting pitcher number four and number five. We're talking about number six, number seven, number eight, the depth behind the guys that you actually feel good about including in your starting five to begin the season or to begin spring training camp down in Jupiter. Those are some of the conversations we'll be having about those names. But as I said, I do want to get into the couple of position players that were let go. We'll start with Juan Yepes because to me, that one's much simpler I know a lot of Cardinals fans were sort of surprised by the idea that Yepes would be cut. I didn't talk about him admittedly because I was looking at a list of guys who were arbitration eligible. I didn't expand my list to the extent that I ought to have. I think I did mention his name in terms of guys that probably don't need to be on the 40-man anymore, but that was a different conversation than specific to looking ahead to Friday and which guys could be legitimately non-tendered. But it happens to Juan Yepes, despite the fact that he's pre-arbitration eligible and wouldn't have cost that much. Why does it take place? Well, you can take a look at how his star really seemed to fade in 2023, whether due to a combination of his own performance and the lack of opportunity that was, you know, kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're not performing. You don't get opportunities. You perform worse because you're expecting opportunities that you feel you should have, but you're not getting them because you're not performing well. Is it the chicken or the egg? The Cardinals did seem to prioritize some other players at the positions that Juan Yepes plays, which is really not many, but corner outfield spots and first base. Those are the two spots that you could uh, conceivably see him in, left field and first base for the most part. And those roles were kind of filled up by guys that uh, seemed to leap over Juan Yepes in terms of the pecking order. Alec Burleson, uh, again, you talk about left-handed hitter versus right-handed hitter. That was the explanation for why Burleson got opportunities that Yepes didn't get. They played different roles on the roster, but Burleson was a, a bona fide shoe in to make this team. We found out after the fact, like the Cardinals, when they operated down in Jupiter last year, it was under the full belief that like, yeah, Burleson is coming with us. There's no doubt about that. In fact, at one point, Ollie Marmel even said it was kind of a conversation between Yepes and Dylan Carlson as to who would make the team. And I you know, said at the time that that sounded completely ridiculous, but that was the story that they were sort of going with. And obviously, Yepes did not end up with the priority role over some of the other players. And then when you even had first base opportunities later in the season, you saw those go to Luke and Baker. And it just seemed like Juan Yepes was buried and certainly with the lack of defensive flexibility. And as I mentioned, you can play first, you can play the corner outfield, but can he play them well? Not really. Not a strong fielder. He is a, a hitter and pretty much only a hitter. 
And in 2023, he didn't hit. You look at his numbers with St. Louis and the minimal, admittedly, opportunity that he got, much less opportunity than he had in 2022, where he hit pretty well. Had a 742 OPS in a 274 plate appearances, which was played about half the year with the Cardinals and had a 109 OPS plus. He was better than league average as a hitter in 2022, which was kind of his, you know, his breakthrough year in the organization after working his way up through the minors. Traded to St. Louis long ago for Matt Adams, of course, in a deal that at the time I thought was just a nothing deal to just find a place for Matt Adams to go play. The Cardinals continued to usher Juan Yepes along, and he continued to hit everywhere he went, and things were looking good for him until whatever happened coming into 2023. The opportunities, as I said, weren't there. Didn't have a great spring, as I recall it. And then in AAA, really just didn't stand out. Had a lower OPS in AAA in 2023 than he did at the big league level in 2022. Had a 736 OPS. Didn't really hit for as much power as you would have thought. Just nine home runs in nearly 400 plate appearances. It just didn't end up working out for him. And I just kind of got the sense that the Cardinals maybe were ready to move on almost as much as Juan Yepes was ready to move on. I, I don't know how happy he was necessarily to be lacking those opportunities. But again, your performance is sort of going to dictate that. And could you make the case that the Cardinals could have instilled some more confidence in Juan Yepes at a certain point to maybe usher him along and, and give him more of those opportunities? Perhaps. But I think when you look at the issues the Cardinals were already facing in terms of positionally, defensively, they had a bunch of outfielders. They had Paul Goldschmidt playing every day at first base. And it was really kind of hard to strain to figure out how to get Juan Yepes opportunities. Because as it was, they were looking to get Jordan Walker involved. I think that was probably one of the biggest impediments to Juan Yepes having a chance because you couldn't theoretically put Juan Yepes in left field and Jordan Walker in right field. Like the moment that you imagine that sort of outfield alignment, you immediately go, nope, that sounds terrible because Walker working to try and make himself into an outfielder. Juan Yepes kind of doing the same, although he had some experience doing so in 2022. But with the issues the Cardinals were having in center field, not really finding the consistency defensively in that spot until really Tommy Edmond kind of held it down toward the end of the season. And you know you wanted Jordan Walker at, and I know Jordan Walker spent some time in the minors and Juan Yepes was up during some of that. But ultimately, it just didn't make sense to have Juan Yepes defensively in the daily lineup with all the other sort of issues that the Cardinals were trying to iron out defensively. And offensively, he wasn't forcing the issue. So not too surprising in retrospect to see the way that his 2023 season went when you just recognize that offensively the production was never enough to beat the door down and justify the Cardinals giving him opportunities. I think that's how the team viewed it. And if you're Juan Yepes, you feel like, my gosh, I've worked this hard and gotten to this point. But ultimately, I, I think it was a case where maybe both sides felt it was uh, good to go their separate ways. And we'll see if Juan Yepes catches on somewhere. It's totally possible that he would. But I think the Cardinals just got to a point where the juice maybe wasn't worth the squeeze. And again, you don't make that move without probably trying to move a guy via trade. And even though it's a low salary that would have been commanded for Juan Yepes, he doesn't get another team to take a flyer on him before that non-tender deadline. There was no evident trade value, I guess, to be found. Now, I don't know how hard the Cardinals really tried to shop him if they had just made up their mind that, yeah, they weren't going to bother with it. They had their hand in other cookie jars trying to make things happen with other players and didn't consider it worthwhile that they would be able to get a meaningful deal done for Juan Yepes. Maybe they did shop him. We just don't really know the extent. So I'm just purely speculating at this point about the way that that all went down. 
But it seemed in the end the Cardinals just didn't consider stashing him away with a 40-man roster spot in particular to be a valuable use of their resources. And honestly, I kind of agree with it. Yes, he could end up hitting somewhere, but the Cardinals have too many guys who are offense first and maybe a little bit questionable defensively that have better bats than Juan Yepes has that they're already going to have to try and figure out how to fit into the lineup on a daily basis. What is the story going to be for Jordan Walker long-term in terms of his viability as an outfielder versus will he have to sort of succumb to the notion of an everyday DH job, or maybe he is a future first baseman. No news yet on what happens with Paul Goldsmith beyond this season. I imagine both sides would be open to an extension, but we got to wait a little longer, I guess, to see if anything materializes on that front. We'll have to wait and see. But they're trying to figure it out with Jordan Walker. All right, you're trying to also figure it out with Nolan Gorman, not because of him being a defensive liability, because I don't think he is. I think he's at least an average second baseman in has the more than enough chops to to turn into an above average defensive second baseman. But you do already have guys on the roster that defensively are ahead of him. Brendan Donovan, if he's playing second base, I believe is a, a better defensive second baseman than Gorman. Although Gorman's arm is is definitely a, an aspect that I think he could get to a point where he can be really good defensively. But the range is probably always going to be a little bit lesser than some of the other guys that we're talking about. Tommy Edmond, I think, is a really good defensive second baseman. Uh, has won the gold glove there before, so I don't have any doubts in his ability. I know that the numbers weren't as good for him defensively at second base specifically in 2023, but I do attribute that to the fact that the Cardinals were moving him around so much. He would never say it. The team would never say it. They they trump up his ability, and I don't think like disingenuously. I think he has great ability to be whatever he needs to be for the team and move around positions and do so effectively. But I also look at it and think from a perspective of reality just kind of dictates that it might be easier to play one position every day. And if Tommy Evan was playing second base every day, I think he would be great at it. Same as when he just started to be an outfielder exclusively. He was really good in the outfield defensively. I think Tommy Evan could be a a second baseman that's fantastic. Once again, if they stationed him there every day, Brendan Donovan, again, he has the ability, did win the utility gold glove a year ago does have the ability to move around, but I think when he's at second base, uh, it doesn't look like he misses a beat compared to playing around the diamond. I, I have both of those guys just ahead of Nolan Gorman in terms of defense as of right now. We'll see kind of what the new year brings and what each guy does in the offseason to potentially up their game in that respect. But they also would have to consider like, okay, is Nolan Gorman going to get some time at designated hitter? Is Wilson Contreras going to get some time at designated hitter? We'll talk about the Andrew Kisner implications here in a moment, but I think also you just figure that they're going to want to keep that bat in the lineup. And if he only catches 110, let's say generously 120 games in 2024, speaking of Wilson Contreras, assuming health, then there are going to be a couple dozen games you would think that they're going to put him in as a designated hitter. And that's maybe on the, again, on the generous side that he would catch to that extent. And then there would be only minimal DH opportunities for him, 20 to 30, rather than what could happen is like 40 to 50. And again, that's all health dependent, but there are only so many DH games to go around. And if you're hitting with a 730 some odd OPS and AAA, you're not the player that's going to be prioritized ahead of Jordan Walker, ahead of potentially sometimes Nolan Gorman, keeping his bat in the lineup against right-handed pitching. And and then Wilson Contreras mixing in as well for those DH opportunities. So I just don't think there was a future for Juan Yepes here and you could 
go another year of sort of playing that in between where you say, eh, he's not really seeming to be too satisfied with his lack of opportunities in AAA, but he's not performing in the opportunities we're giving him, and so that doesn't compel us to give him big league opportunities when the time should come and injuries should take place, and it just seemed like there was no path forward for the Cardinals and Juan Yepes. So there will be some fans that look at that as another potential Randy Rosarena, another potential Adolis Garcia that the Cardinals let walk out the door. We'll see where Juan Yepes ends up with an opportunity. There's no doubt that the guy can hit. I don't know where he'll catch on to be given the opportunity to do so. It is a limiting factor that you didn't really have with Yepes, or pardon me, with uh, Adolis Garcia or a Rosarena, that those guys can hold their own in the outfield. And Yepes was improving, but I don't think to the point where the Cardinals could afford to have him out there alongside Jordan Walker and maybe question marks in center field. Like when Lars Newpar was playing center field, he wasn't bad at it, but I think he's much better suited to the corners, and the Cardinals just had a full house already at the positions that Juan Yepes would potentially see some opportunity. So with all of that considered, that's a move the Cardinals make. What do you think about it, Cardinals fans? Again, I know that I may be in the minority on this. There might be a lot of people that say it's a travesty that they let Juan Yepes go. To me, not a huge travesty. Yes, it could be one that the Cardinals end up with some egg on their face if and when Yepes should get some opportunities elsewhere to bat. But batting is what's going to carry him, and he didn't do a lot of it in a in a AAA lineup or in the big league lineup last year, and that's why I think the Cardinals just had to make some tough decisions. Because when they're making a tough decision on Yepes to say we need that 40-man spot, that's one thing. To do it with a guy who actually contributed to the big league club last year is another, and that's a decision the Cardinals made as well as we get into talking about the move to cut Andrew Kisner as well. Andrew Kisner took a step forward in 2023. He was viewed as a really crucial piece to what the Cardinals were trying to do. Obviously, it happens in a year where they don't play very well. So you can look at that and say, well, that's a a reflection. If you're relying upon Andrew Kisner as much as they were, maybe that says more about, you know, Andrew Kisner when you look at the record of the team than it does uh, trumping him up in some way to say that he was so so, such a key cog. Well, I've talked a lot about how I believe in Andrew Kisner, believe that he is a good and valuable piece of the Cardinals. The Cardinals obviously didn't see it that way, but it always has to be a balance too, right? Like, I don't think they looked at Kisner and said, oh, he stinks, just cut him. Here are the things the Cardinals were looking at. One, the salary, and I don't think this was the top thing on the list, but it's where I'm going to start because that's always kind of the implication is that, oh, the Cardinals cut somebody to save some money. Well, they do. They save a couple of million dollars. He would have been... Uh, another year of arbitration eligibility would have had 2025 as well as his final year of arbitration eligibility before being eligible for free agency. Now he is obviously a free agent since the Cardinals non-tendered him, but Kisner, I, I think earned whatever raise he would have gotten with the Cardinals, honestly. And I think it is a bit of a surprise that the team was not able to trade him. I think that's more of a reflection of John Moselak than it is Andrew Kisner. They reportedly were shopping Dakota Hudson hard as well, weren't able to find a match for him. I mean, these are four players that I think, in the case of Hudson, Woodford, Kisner, and even Yepes, are going to catch on somewhere. Will it be with major league deals or or deals on the 40-man roster in each place? I would say probably not. You may have one or two of these guys end up with minor league deals as they kind of get their feet wet with a new organization. But I bet you end up seeing all of them in the major leagues at some point or another, barring injury. And it's just kind of baffling that the Cardinals consistently manage their 40-man roster in the way that they do, where it's always talked about that it's, oh, you got to mind the 40-man and you got to pay attention to these things and you want to maximize it. I I mean, they have done a horrible job of maximizing the 40-man, and I don't really know how you could view it any differently. 
The Cardinals may view it from the perspective of, look, those bottom five or so spots at any given time on the 40-man don't really matter that much. So if we end up needing the, the room, we'll cut the guys when we need to cut the guys, but it's just not that big of a deal. That's possibly the way they look at it because if you look at the results over the years, these types of moves really do sort of feel like the trend for the Cardinals where they hang on to guys for longer than they should in terms of, yeah, they're worried about trading somebody too early and not maximizing their value to the extent that they don't really have the ability to give all of these players opportunities at their respective positions at the same time. And so they end up kind of having some of those guys wither away at the bottom of the 40-man roster, and then they end up getting cut for nothing. Now, it's not to say that all of them would have had value to other organizations. And again, the fact that none of them get traded kind of makes you wonder if teams around the league really view them in a very respectful light. But the other side of that coin really could be that other teams in the league know that John Mozeliak is always trying to wait to peddle his wares long after he's really had the the leg to stand on to do so. Like other teams can recognize, hey, the reason the Cardinals are pushing so hard is because they're about to get rid of these guys. If we really want so-and-so, player X, Y, or Z, we can just wait a couple of days and then make a make a free agency bid or have a minor league contract that we draw up and offer with some sort of incentive to get them to sign if they get a major league deal with us. Like Teams just know eh, the Cardinals are going to get rid of these guys. I don't know that John Moselock has a very good poker face when it comes to these situations. It just really seems like it doesn't occur ever to the Cardinals to trade somebody when they would have value because they're so deathly afraid of trading someone that's trending up and then having that player continue to trend up rather than, hey, this guy maybe just played above his head and other teams might have interest in him right now. This would be a time to maybe make a move that can clear a 40-man spot. It's like they've been burned by having that mindset in the past because that's exactly what it was with Randy Rosarena. They felt like they had plenty of outfielders already. They put their eggs in the baskets of guys like Harrison Bader and Tyler O'Neill and the other guys that were on the roster at the time, and they didn't figure that Randy Rosarena was going to turn into anything. So they make that move and trade for Matthew Libertor, who was several years away from having to be put on the 40-man roster. It was a way to take an extra thing that they had and get something that they felt they didn't have. And it didn't work out. Like, there's no question about it. Even if Matthew Libertor turns into a viable piece for them this year, ultimately, you lost the Rosarena trade. I think the book is about closed on that. I mean, Libertor could turn into an ace starter, but how much of a percentage chance are we giving of that happening at this point? And otherwise, you lost the deal. It is what it is. But you can't necessarily live in fear of that deal for the rest of your tenure trying to make these types of trades. And it does feel to me that that's what ends up happening. The Cardinals sap all value from these players because they're holding on to them too tightly. They view them as prospects or they just view them as we can't make the same mistake again. And then it sort of does become that self-fulfilling prophecy where that's the mistake. You're not able to get any trade value for these players. But specific to Andrew Kisner... I don't think it was as simplistic as the Cardinals wanting to save a few bucks. They also have Yvonne Herrera. I think that is a big part of this, and it seems as though the Cardinals are ready to move forward with the former top-catching prospect as at least a guy who's going to be their, their main backup this year to Wilson Contreras. He showed a lot more than I think the Cardinals expected him to show in 2023, not only with the cup of coffee that he got in the big leagues, 
but with the way that he hit in Memphis with a 951 OPS, he ends up being named the minor league player of the year in the organization. They're clearly very high on Ivan Herrera. And you can make the case that being named minor league player of the year, a little bit of a surprise when you had guys like Mason Wynn doing some really good things in the minors as well. So Herrera is viewed very highly once again by the organization. I'm not entirely sure that they viewed him this highly or even anything close to this last year, because if they did, I don't think you go out with the level of desperation that they had in getting Wilson Contreras, right? You spend $87.5 million, you basically bid against yourselves because we know the Cubs weren't in on him. I don't know if we could name a second team that was vying to make him the primary catcher at that dollar amount, but the Cardinals knew like they had to replace Yadier Molina and they didn't feel like they had in-house anybody that was going to be able to do it to the level that they demanded or expected. So just seemed like his star had faded a little bit, but then Herrera clearly put in the work in the offseason between 2022 and 2023, came in and had a great year both in Memphis and when he got some rare opportunities in the big leagues. And that's the decision the Cardinals make to basically not block Ivan Herrera. Thought that maybe there was a chance they would elect to trade Herrera and continue with a backstop tandem of Contreras and Andrew Kisner. Maybe you pay a little bit more to do so because you're paying one guy almost $90 million. You're paying another guy a couple of million to be the backup. The Cardinals perhaps felt, hey, we've invested enough at the catcher position. It's time to let the guy that we paid to be the guy be the guy. And maybe there could be a little bit of a lingering effect of, hey, last year we had Wilson Contreras. He was supposed to be our guy at the beginning, and then he got benched. Well, why did he get benched? Because the pitchers had some sort of miscommunications with him, and and it just didn't seem they preferred to throw to him, at least for a time, and that was uncomfortable for everybody, and they had to go through the process of sort of mending those fences and rectifying those issues, whatever they were. It doesn't really matter anymore. The Cardinals are making it clear with the moves that they're making, that they're moving forward and fully investing in Wilson Contreras as the primary catcher in 2024 and beyond. That's what the dismissal, essentially, of Andrew Kisner says to me is, hey, any pitchers that may have had a problem with the idea that you're throwing to Wilson every fifth day, you're going to have to get over that idea pretty quickly because the, the safety blanket, the safety net, he's gone. The guy that you thought you just had to throw to He's not here anymore. And that's not really to the fault of Andrew Kisner that he was a comfortable target for these pitchers. But the reality is the pitchers still didn't throw well for the season. Now, it's not on Kisner. I don't think that's really on Contreras. I think it's on the pitchers. And I think, again, when we talk about those 600-plus innings that have departed the organization, not all of those innings were quality innings. They were from the guys they traded away, particularly in the case of Jordan Montgomery, Jordan Hicks. You can maybe say some of Flaherty, but really he was a disappointment last year, too. Uh, Chris Stratton was fine, but like there's 600 plus innings where a lot of those innings were you strained to get to replacement level on those innings. And how many of those guys are saying, oh, I got to throw to to Andrew Kisner because this Wilson Contreras guy is not working out. Like the Cardinals maybe just had to put their foot down a little bit, take away the toy and say, hey, Wilson Contreras is our catcher. This is the way that we're committing to that. Now that could be bold. I guess it depends on the level to which you think Wilson Contreras was to blame for a lot of the finger pointing that happened in his direction last year. If it was more on the pitchers in your mind and Wilson was really doing a fine job and the pitchers were just being babies about it, then I guess this works out because the Cardinals are backing the right horse in that case. But if there was any realism to the idea that Contreras, uh, you know, had a way to go in the way he called games or just whatever, all the things that were going on were going on. And if any of those 
elements still remain the case going into next year, well, the Cardinals could have a problem on their hands. But I tend to believe that Wilson Contreras is up for the job. Again, he's a veteran catcher that's done it for a long time. Maybe he didn't do it the way Yadier Molina did it. That's just going to have to be something that different people get used to within the organization. Not to mention the fact that if there are some deficiencies in his game, here comes Yadier Molina likely to join the coaching staff in some capacity. I'm starting to lean with each passing day to the idea that it's not necessarily as an everyday in-uniform role on the Major League coaching staff. Maybe more of a special advisor that shows up from time to time that kind of fits with Yadier's schedule a little bit more appropriately, but he's going to be down there in spring training, I would bet, almost regardless of what the role is that the Cardinals announce for him. And that could be as valuable as anything to spend time and, and to kind of show, hey, Yadier Molina had a spring training routine that is the stuff of legend down there in Jupiter, Florida, would be getting into the facility before the, the sun came up every day. That's the kind of work that he put into it to be great. Wilson Contreras could see a little bit of that. And it, again, I think if you think that Wilson isn't working hard, you've got the wrong idea of it. But I also don't think that it can hurt to learn from a guy who's who belongs in the Hall of Fame and I think is one day going to be there of how to do your routine, how to go about the position as the, the lead catcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. So I think Wilson Contreras is certainly up for the task. What that unfortunately means is that Andrew Kisner is collateral damage because I think the Cardinals believe or are at least have boxed themselves into a position where they almost have no choice but to believe that Contreras is and can be the guy and can be great at it because they signed him to be. So what that means is almost, I would say, through no fault of his own, Andrew Kisner's out of a job because his replacement is cheaper and his replacement is maybe not as much of a threat to the existential crisis of what it would mean to have Wilson Contreras not be the primary catcher. Andrew Kisner maybe was more of a threat to that, at least in the minds of the pitchers, and the Cardinals had to get to a point where they're not going to placate that anymore. That's the way it appears, at least, to have gone down from the organization's perspective. I don't think it's the right move, not because I don't believe Wilson Contreras can be great, but and not because I don't think highly of, of on Herrera. I, I think Herrera can be great as well. I just think it's another example of mismanaging your resources. And maybe there weren't teams around the game looking to trade for a guy like Yvonne Herrera. But if you could have used him as a centerpiece for a, a viable starting pitcher, that would have been the way that I would have used those resources. But the Cardinals are going the opposite route with that. And again, it's always going to be difficult to speculate because we're never really going to know how viable a thought process was. Because we, I mean, you can even ask the question. You don't know that you're necessarily going to get a very insightful answer. If you say, hey, Mo, could you have traded Herrera and uh, gotten something for him and kept Kisner instead? Well, Mo has no reason to answer that with any level of sincerity because anything he says, even if it's true, would then serve to put Herrera on notice. Like, oh, man, I was about to get traded. Like, there's just no benefit to answering that question in, in any level of detail. So we really won't ever know, I don't think, the full explanation of kind of what went down in, in the decision-making process with Kisner uh, I, I did read that uh, Katie Wu with The Athletic had an excerpt from something Mosellac said on KMOX Radio, so this wasn't in an interview with any writers or anything, but uh, this was an excer excerpt that I'm just reading from her story uh, that was said on the radio. The one decision I think we were really torn on was with Kisner, and there's some parentheses in there, so not all those words were spoken, but implied that the Kisner decision was the one that they were torn on Mozilloc said on KMOX, we definitely were looking to see if we could find a way to move him first. We really wanted to clear a path for Herrera. 
We felt like with where he is, his age, and what he could potentially do for us, these are never easy decisions, but certainly felt like we had to do it. So that seems to track with what my thought process was on how maybe the Cardinals would have and could have viewed all of these moves. Yepes one, not really too difficult. The pitchers, not really too difficult. Again, to do the pitching moves where you get rid of Hudson and Woodford, you save about $5 million, but you also have to do that knowing that you're going to be able to replace them meaningfully and to improve the state of the team. Do you have faith that those innings can come from internal, or do you have to go out and just get better versions of those players, guys that can maybe pitch a little in the bullpen, can pitch out of the rotation if you need them to as your sixth or seventh starters, you got to find those names from somewhere. The fact that the Cardinals decided, no, we're not going to kind of settle for what Hudson and Woodford could bring back in those roles, I think, honestly, a positive decision, but it does need to be followed up by something more in terms of additions to the roster, additions to the pitching staff, beyond just having Lance Lynn be your number four or your number five starter and then signing a number one, whether it's Sonny Gray or somebody else and then trading for somebody, whoever that might be, I think it goes deeper than that. It goes to the consideration of depth and bullpen and circling the total number of innings that you lost, figure out how to replicate those innings, but do so in a more effective way. I think it was the right move to get rid of both of the pitchers and to allow yourself to reach for a little bit of a higher ceiling, but it's incumbent upon the organization and the front office in particular to acquire the players that can be better for the Cardinals in 2024 than Hudson and Woodford were for them last season. In the case of Yepes, you needed that roster spot for somebody you could actually use that had some versatility, probably a pitcher because you don't have enough of them on the roster just yet, and you're going to need those innings. Andrew Kisner is the one that I circle, but the reality is you didn't need three catchers on the 26-man roster. You didn't need four of them on the 40-man roster. Remember, Pedro Pajes was added before the Rule 5 protection deadline. That was a signal, evidently, at the time that the Cardinals were certainly uh, ready to move on from Andrew Kisner. I think they wanted to try and find a trade for him, weren't able to do so. But again, when you tip your hand and add a fourth catcher to the 40-man and you have a catcher that's going to make $2 million, other teams say, hey, if I want this player, I can convince him to sign here for less. I know he's going to be non-tendered in a couple of days. I feel like the Cardinals are oftentimes backwards with this, but I also understand that sometimes the machinations of these moves, um, we can oversimplify them from the outside when in reality, there's only so much maybe that John Mosley-Luck and company can do. But when you consistently see other teams making these types of moves happen and the Cardinals not, it can get a little bit frustrating. Like the Braves, for instance, they didn't mind trading four different guys that they were potentially looking to non-tender for one reliever in Aaron Bummer who had a bad 2023 season, but they saw an upside with like the Cardinals. I I would say that they're very much a non-creative front office when it comes to making trades. There's not a lot of creativity or thoughts thought in there of, Hey, why not do it this way? Because we could, and it would solve our problems. Like it just doesn't seem like the Cardinals, maybe that maybe they're more creative than I'm giving them credit for. And they just haven't been able to execute on that creativity, but it also, the sense I get is that sometimes it just doesn't occur to them to pursue something that could be a little bit off the wall in that regard. Like right now, the example that I would give, there's no reason that Alec Manoa is not a St. Louis Cardinal. And that doesn't mean that Alec Manoa is great or that he's ever going to be good again, 
but it wasn't that long ago that Alec Manoa was really, really freaking good. All-star caliber pitcher, and then completely fell off the face of the earth last year, went all the way down to the complex league, tried to make his way back up, still had some issues. A lot of things going on there with Alec Manoa, and it's not a guarantee to me that the Cardinals are going to be able to fix him. But if you have so many extra outfielders, you can't find a way to trade one of them with a flyer pitching prospect to get Alec Manoa, who's got clear upside. Is it that the Cardinals just don't think they could fix him? Like, and again, I'm having this podcast right now with the assumption that he's not going to become a Cardinal. And some Cardinals fans would say, well, that's a good thing, because if you count on him as part of your rotation and the other parts are Lance Lynn, Miles Michaelis, Steven Matz, Manoa's your fourth and you get whoever you get as the fifth, doesn't really matter, that's not enough. I would say, okay, I never said that Alec Manoa had to be your five, had to be in your rotation. Trade somebody for him that you don't really think you're going to have as a mainstay anyway next year, even if it is Dylan Carlson and you feel like you're overpaying. And maybe it's the fact that the Blue Jays don't want to do a Carlson for Manoa. But I am telling you, I really feel like Toronto would trade him. There's too much smoke at this point to believe that they're going to have a vice grip on Alec Manoa with all the trouble that he gave him last year. All the expectations that they had for Alec Manoa and then just for it to go the way that it did. I feel like if you were persistent enough, you could find something that would be workable. And maybe the Blue Jays are going to ask for more than you're willing to give. Don't just give up on that conversation. See it through to the end and get the player. Unless you just don't think he's worth the time, which I would have to believe is how the Cardinals look at it. Because again, I think they lack creativity. I think going after Alec Manoa, but then having a game plan for how to get him right would be what the savvy organizations do. Are the Cardinals in a spot where they feel like they have the coaches in place organizationally to make that type of move? to give up on a potential asset, whether it's Carlson. I don't think O'Neill is a good example because he's only got one year left, but they're tendering him a contract evidently for, you know, the five million or whatever that he's going to make. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting. And it's going to be intriguing to see what happens with, with Tyler O'Neill, but Carlson, you know what? He's got multiple years of availability and, and team control. I, I think I'd trade him for Alec Manoa at this point, just because you need to shake up the roster and see what could be. Take a chance on something. Another example, Dylan Carlson had more trade value a year ago, right? And the Cardinals, it sounded cool and flashy when they said, hey, we're not trading you, you're not going anywhere, we're going to back you, Dylan Carlson, as an everyday guy. But then when that kind of goes away and he's just left to rot on the bench, you made a misstep somewhere along the way. Like, you, the guy had some trade value and now he maybe doesn't. You have to, as an organization, at some point, pick up the pieces and try to make some bold decisions. Um I credit them with making some of the bold decisions. Like, again, I don't think it was too terribly bold to non-tender Dakota Hudson and Jake Woodford, but it, it would have been the complacent thing to do to just, hey, yeah, pay him because we may need him for, for some innings. The Cardinals didn't do the complacent thing. They said, no, we got we to gotta clear these roster spots for the, the possibility and the hope that we could find something better because what we had from these guys last year wasn't it, and it's not going to be it. And we are to the end of our rope with these players Let's try to aim a little bit higher. They've done the first part. Now they have to do the part where they acquire the the aim high. They acquire somebody that has the potential to outproduce what those guys did. Can sometimes that come from a creative trade like for Alec Manoa? I think it could and should. Um, whether anything like that comes to fruition remains to be seen. Whether that would be a good idea remains to be seen. Right? Like We may never see what it would look like for an Alec Manoa Cardinals match to happen and, and how that would would play out. But I think the first things first is the Cardinals need to get some 
some pitching minds in the organization that are forward-thinking that they think can do the job, which is not to say that Dusty Blake cannot be a, a forward-thinking pitching mind that can help the organization, but clearly in year one, as the main pitching coach, they didn't get enough out of their guys. Who do you add? Is it going back to the the idea of adding Heim Bloom, who I think would be a great addition to the front office, get some differently thinking people in there when it comes to pitching processes. He did a great job, did great work with the uh, the Rays before moving on to Boston. That's kind of where he made his hay and made his name. Maybe Bloom could be somebody that you get his opinion on pitching and maybe who they should go after and how they should explore these possibilities and you make some creative things happen. I think that's what Cardinals fans would like to see. It's a good sign that they're not complacent. It's clear that they're looking to be a little bit more bold with uh, the decisions they made on these non-tenders, but it's not enough to just get rid of. You have to bring in and do so in an aggressive way and do so within budget, but but fans don't want to hear about prudent. They don't want to hear about your, your salary restrictions. They just want wins, and that's what you've promised them. Like, everything in terms of the the messaging from the organization has been, hey, we expect to contend in 2024, stick with us, be patient. And that was through John Mosellock even saying last year to be patient because they were going to turn it around and we just need a little bit of time to get our get our team together and get healthy and all these things. It never happened. They lost 91 games, right? They said to be patient until they pulled the wool over the eyes and said, oh, well, obviously we have to give up. Look where we're at. Like, that's an old switcheroo. That could be spotted by even the most casual of fans. Cardinals can't get away with that again this year. Why did I say it like that? Cardinals. The Cardinals can't get away with that again this year. They need to make good on the promises, deliver a better product to the fan base, or there needs to be some repercussions at the end of another season where ownership recognizes the fan base isn't going to stand for this anymore. It may be time to usher in a new era. John Mosellock's job is a weird thing to talk about because it's not really ever on the line unless Bill DeWitt says it is, and I don't see a world in which Bill DeWitt gets to that point with Mo, but he's only got two years left anyway. So if I'm John Mosley, like make the bold decisions, right? Like try and do something that you wouldn't have ordinarily done, and now you won't even be around more than likely beyond a couple of years to have to see it through and see the repercussions of of what a bold decision could be. And I know that that a guy like Mo is and should be concerned with legacy, and so you don't want to be reckless but the Cardinals could use a little bit more bold, a little bit more creativity, I think, in exploring some of these options. But Cardinals fans, I would say be encouraged because so far you are seeing steps toward that end. You're seeing them recognize that they've got to get they've got to get some bodies that can pitch innings so they get Lance Lynn. Um, they've got to make some coaching tweaks to, to maybe get a little bit of a different vibe into that room. They bring in Daniel Descalzo to be the bench coach, which my full thoughts on that, I guess that we haven't really talked about it yet because in the previous episode... We mentioned the reports that um, Descalzo was being hired, and then it becomes official that he is being named the bench coach, which means Joe McEwing being reassigned, which is something we talked about weeks and weeks ago, was probably going to happen, that maybe the Cardinals would go a different direction with the bench coach role. And honestly, it makes sense when you think about the fact that they wanted Matt Holliday. They got Matt Holliday. Matt Holliday had the job for you know a handful of days that didn't matter because it was the offseason. And then he said, no thanks, right before it was time to get to spring training and get things cooking. So what did the Cardinals have to do? They had to scramble and find anybody to be the bench coach. And it's not to say that Joe McEwing didn't do his darndest, but I would say that if you have a full off season, a chance to 
do that process over again and hire the guy that you want to hire rather than the guy that you just had to get at the last second. It's not a knock on McEwing. They did the best they could finding somebody with experience last year. I'm not so concerned about experience. I think it needs to just be good camaraderie with the coaching staff. And it, it's not that the, the vibe was bad with McEwing, I don't think. It's that it can be better, I think, with somebody that Ollie Marmel has either a pre-existing relationship or the ability to, um, to, to kind of take it in a direction that, like they picked it to be this way. McEwing was always the candidate that, that wasn't considered until they just had to have somebody, right? And I think that's okay. That's not a reflection, a poor reflection of anybody. It's that Matt Holiday put him in a bad spot, and he did. We, you know, we all love Matt Holiday, but that that screwed them because they had to just get somebody at the last moment, and uh, that somebody ended up being Joe McEwing, who's now reassigned to be a special advisor to Mosellock, and and I think he can still have a role in the organization where um, he can help you out. But you you need the bench coach to be somebody that the manager almost handpicks, and I don't know, I just don't get the sense that that McEwing was handpicked based on the timing of the way that it all went down. So Daniel Descalzo gets that role for the Cardinals. Best case scenario, he's you know the, the second coming of Skip Schumacher and can have that sort of camaraderie. That was that was your bench coach in 2022 when when you had a good year, right? Only Marmol's first year as the manager. I think it was a really good season until you see Ryan Helsley injure his finger on a Tuesday in Pittsburgh and everything else that followed, losing that playoff series. But maybe that is an element that can help out get Ollie Marmel uh, a hand-picked bench coach, which, again, is not to rip the other guy, but I think this will serve to improve the situation and allow the Cardinals to be steering in the direction that they would have chose to be steering in rather than the one that was sort of forced or hoisted upon them based on the Matt Holiday situation. And something else that should be noted about this press release announcing Descalzo as the bench coach, there was a little snippet in there that said the Cardinals intend to have Further announcements to come on additions to the 2024 coaching staff. That's a big flashing alarm that signals Yadier Molina. I just don't know if that's going to be full-time or in some other capacity. I think the Cardinals would probably like for it to be full-time. I wonder if Yadier Molina feels the same or if, again, it was kind of like a Matt Holiday deal where Holiday's situation was known to be, he'd like to be a big league manager, but maybe not yet or maybe tough sell to do the bench coach job for a while before getting the opportunity to be a big league manager. It's really interesting. Like Skip Schumacher, that's the path. And he wasn't a superstar player. So a little easier for Skip Schumacher to go, yeah, I have to be a coach before I can be a manager. That makes sense. That's how it works in most instances. And he worked his way up and got the opportunity and he's great at it with Miami. Now in the case of holiday, I think he was a star player. So if he's going to spend his time or, waste his time doing it or pursuing it. It's like, I just need the top job right away. That's kind of the star player mentality. Is that going to be Yadier Molina's mentality as well? If it is, I couldn't even blame him because he doesn't need that job. And it's not to say Skip Schumacher didn't make good money during his playing career and that he needed the job. But Yadier Molina doesn't need the job. But it would be nice to have it. But do you want it as like a status symbol or... You want to just say, ah, I was a good enough player that I'll, I'll get it based on my pedigree and not have to do the coaching thing first. And if I don't end up getting the opportunity because of not pursuing coaching and, and kind of putting my time in from that perspective, then I'll be okay with not ever ending up with the opportunity. That's kind of something that I think those types of guys who were star players in their in their playing days 
are going to maybe have to try and balance to figure out like how important is it to ever get a major league managing opportunity. You may have to put some time in in another capacity before that. I think in Holiday's case, we'll see. I think in Yachty's case, he'll be a big league manager someday, regardless. Like, it's not to say that Holiday doesn't have cachet, but Yachty, I think, has got about as much cachet as anybody and is going to get that opportunity somewhere if I had to predict it. Will it be in St. Louis? I I don't. I've talked long enough today and I, <laughs> I don't want to go there. Um, I think the Cardinals are, are clearly behind Ollie Marmel, and I think that the Daniel Descalzo hiring as the bench coach is a move that is going to make Ollie's job easier. I think that's going to be beneficial. It doesn't concern me, the lack of experience. That was something that I was asked on Twitter today. No, it doesn't really concern me that Descalzo doesn't have a ton of coaching experience. He was he was with Arizona in some capacities last year, um, but I think I think he's going to be up for the task, and I think him and Ollie are going to be on the same page, um, which is going to be to the benefit of everybody. So let me know what you think about the Descalzo move, the Lance Lynn move, if you still want to chime in on that, but mainly about the non-tenders as well. The Andrew Kisner one was pretty interesting, but the Cardinals felt that it was the direction that they needed to go at this point. Let me know in the YouTube comments section below what you think and continue to listen to V-Shape Daily and the Brendan Schaefer St. Louis Cardinals writer YouTube channel all off season long as we cover all the major moves made by the Cardinals. Would love to have you subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already and do me a favor, click like on this video. Thank you guys so much for listening. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. We'll talk to you next time on V-Shape Daily. Peace.